This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. As long as white supremacy and anti-Black racism is in existence and that we as white people benefit most from it, from the violence and the harm caused to Black people, there is no time that I'm not going to be complicit or any of us won't be complicit. This week, my guests, yes, plural, are the ever-impressive women who make up the No White Saviors team, Olivia, Kelsey, and Wendy. If you don't already follow their page on Instagram, pause this episode and do that first. Their page is one of honest conversation and education, but they're not just an Instagram page. No White Saviors is an advocacy campaign that uses the three pillars of education, advocacy, and action to disrupt the traditional power structures between the African continent and the West. In this episode, Olivia teaches us about the white savior industrial complex, and Kelsey explains what she means when she says she's a white savior in recovery. Plus, we discuss the phrases that make us roll our eyes. Due to technical difficulties, the chat was just between Olivia, Kelsey, and myself. Here's our conversation. No white saviors team, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. You have no idea how excited I am to have you all here today. And I'm just going to jump in and get started. And I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests. And it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are. And so I'm wondering what you would say is missing from each of your resumes. So that's a good question. Because when you write your resume, you don't put everything there. So what's missing in mine is people getting to know me and interact with me and know which kind of person I am. Because I can write on on a CV a thousand words, but unless you meet me and interact with me and and get a feel of my thoughts and get um get me to share with you my experiences, which I don't which so many I don't share in my resume, then that's that's a great part of me missing because most of the time we don't want to document our lives fully in these CVs. We have a part that we leave to ourselves and and this part can only be shared with people that you meet and you feel are worthy getting to know that other side of your life because not everyone is is worth getting to know the other side of you and and how how does it build you as a person if the other person gets to know you like what are you going to add to me um am, am i going to live with this memory of sharing bit of my life that i that the world doesn't know with you am i going to carry out something am i going to um am i going to feel fully human to express myself to someone else. So for me, I feel that there's another part of me that I never share in the CV. And unless people um, get to meet me and talk to me, then I'm sure they'll get the other side that I normally Mm -hmm. don't share it on paper. Yes. I love that answer, Liv. I think um, I loved that this question was first. I thought it's so good to see questions and be asked things that are not just the run of the mill, normal questions that you get. And I, my first thought was that 
the things that are not on my CV are far more important than anything listed on my CV ever could be um, and have made me way more equipped and built me to be who I am and to do what we do in a way that no amount of, I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in social work. I have work experience. I have certain trainings and things that I've done or different, you know, things that I've helped start and accolades you can list. But I'm like, the life experiences, the people who have mentored me, the um, the different things that have built me, um, you know, from the ground up as a kid um, have have made me who I am. So I think a lot of um, just a lot of my upbringing, growing up around folks from very different backgrounds, um, growing up um, from a rougher upbringing, low income, single parent household with an abusive father. Those are things that make a person who they are when you can stand up to your dad and tell and like challenge him when he's when he's wrong, when you're a little kid and he's saying bad things about your mother, it's not as scary when you come up against like white supremacy and, and colonization, like those things are scary, but they're not, they're not your father. They're not the person that's supposed to raise you and protect you. So I think I say that because yeah, it's getting a little personal, but I think it's okay to do that. I think it's okay to name um, that our life experiences do build us to be who we are and to handle what we handle. Um, and I think that, um, a lot of, a lot of the time, I think most of us, what's not on our CV is way more important and way more of an indication of who we are and what we're built for than anything that's listed there. I 100% agree with that and, and totally appreciate the getting personal because, you know, those are the things that sort of, as you said, shape us and are important for people to understand, um, about us. And, 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 you know, we see the world as we are, not as it is. So those things help make sense of us. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of give my listeners a brief description of how you came to be No White Saviors. So, um, of course, I expected such a question, at least in this podcast, because so many people would want to know how this whole No White Savior Instagram page and the organization now started. So, um, No White Savior started as a result of conversation between three ladies and um, me olivia kelsey and sharon is a team member in finland and me and sharon grew up in ginger ginger is like um a home of white people white people love ginger so much and growing up there we had uh, different experiences on seeing white people move on the streets and also moving with black children and and white people visiting us in schools and singing for them. You know, I can't even figure out what we used to sing, but you clapping, even when they're just reading the Bible because they're white, you're always clapping and you're being happy. So for me as a child, I thought that white people bring good things every time. Like every time you see a white person, they are, they are blessed from God. And and I didn't feel that we black people were blessed. So growing up in this town where I saw these things, but as a kid, of course, um, I, I felt that was normal to feel that way. They were superior and they were God's chosen people. So when I joined um, school, I I always wanted to work with the community. I always wanted to work with uh, people. So I was always saying, how do I connect back to my people? How do I be next to people? Which course can I do? And then, so I did social work and I started working back in Ginger. And uh, I worked with Kelsey at one point and she was my boss. 
And um, the time of my work there was okay, but it got to a point whereby I just resigned because um, there, there were some white people, new people who had come in the organization and they felt that we were paid a lot of money and we had to really, really work to earn this money. And for me, it felt like it wasn't right. And I was just a social worker, a case manager. I had no right to stop this. And I said, okay, how how do I protect my conscience 10 years from here by not looking at this and not being able to do anything would be the biggest mistake of my life. So walking away is is the option for me because I can't look at this anymore. But it was not only where I was working, different NGOs in Jinja, our like people like Olivia, Ugandans had the same issues, you know, when it came to decision making was basically done by white people. And of course we would get time and discuss these issues about how we felt the work was going. So um after some time I I left the organization but I continued talking to Kelsey and now I started really getting the answers that I was looking for when I was a child. Why were white women moving around with black children? Adoption, of course. Why was Ginger full of white people? I got to understand what was happening in my hometown as I grew up. I'm like, okay, so this is the whole meaning of people making us clap, people making us sing in schools and people making us in inferior of you know being um black children like we needed to uphold white supremacy we needed to make them feel that um they're important so when i left i uh, after some i think a year kelsey also left the organization because she was a co-founder but then because of what we had seen in ginger really the the pay in some organizations the the propositions of putting you as a, let's say, manager and you have no decision making. There was so much going on. And so me and Sharon and Kelsey continued the conversation even when Kelsey left. And we said, okay, how do we how do we bring light to these issues? We started sharing the different stories that we saw on Facebook and saying, wow, this is what happened in Jinja. You remember this white woman who actually adopted um, 18 girls? You remember? So we, we say, okay, what do we do? We start a hashtag on Instagram that says no white saviors. And also the fact that Kelsey, as a white woman who was in the same system, who is still in the same system and 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 who is still part of the problem that we're experiencing came out and said, you know what, as white people, we need to do better. These guys are not crazy talking about these issues that happen in Ginger. They really happened and we need to do something. So her coming up also um, gave us hope, me and Sharon saying, oh, so if Kelsey, who is part of the same system, can come out and um, talk about this system, then I think, okay, we can have these conversations. So that's how we start No White Saviors. We didn't sit and plan it. We'll be deceiving your view, your listeners. It just came as conversations between the three of us because of our lived experiences and what we had seen. And we come up with the Instagram page. And at one point I asked Kelsey, 
when we're in ginger that <laughs> I don't think anyone will be really willing to follow our work because the world, I don't think the world needs to hear this. And so we started by one person, two, and when we got to about 5,000, we're all screaming and running around and saying, what? This is, this is too much. And 10,000 were overwhelmed. So we said, what is this? The work is speaking for itself. People needed this conversation. And that's how we grew our platform. There's no magic. We can't say that we, we've asked people, we've wrote a post and asked people, can you please follow our work? No. To where we are, 900K, 100K to a million people around the world. And we're like, okay, the work is speaking for itself. So to all the listeners out there, no one savers had no magic. It's a conversation that was needed long time ago and we brought it to light and we are happy to share this work and to continue doing the work. But we that's how we started. And now, Kelsey, I know we'll, um, we'll go into what we are doing on the ground. We are not only on Instagram, but we have expanded now to the ground with our new projects. I know Kelsey can break down a few of what uh, we're doing as I take some water. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I mean, I live, you covered pretty much everything on that. I think the only thing I would add is like, I have spent a lot of time sitting with many pieces of my own complicity in this and my ongoing, right? I have a firm belief, the more I've learned and un unlearned is that there is, as long as white supremacy and anti-Black racism is in existence and that we as white people benefit most from it, from the violence and the harm caused to Black people, there is no time that I'm not gonna be complicit or any of us won't be complicit. So we have to really get rid of that whole good white person syndrome. It's something that we, um, I think we actually introduced that phrasing um, a few, like probably two years ago on our platform. This idea of the good white person syndrome, the danger of that is, very similar to how um, Malcolm X would talk about the white liberal, of the fact that the white liberal will come in with, um, as like a fox, right? Will come in smiling, um, whereas the white conservative or the overt racist, um, we can substitute that out for, for they're interchangeable in many ways. Um, the overt racist is gonna come in like a wolf. You know it's gonna bite you, know, you know what he's there for, but the fox is gonna look cute, smile at you, but still gonna bite you. Um, and so the danger with that, and I think that's really um, such a good um, just kind of picture of the white savior complex, because we've come in smiling. We've come in with Bibles and with churches and with schools and orphanages and big aid packages. And it has always been with strings attached. It has always been so that we could control, manipulate, dominate, colonize African people. Um, we need this continent to survive. We've needed the resources. We've needed um, the land. We've needed so many things. Um, and, and we like to be able to paint ourselves as the benevolent hero in the process of, of taking and stealing. Um, so I think that what I'm saying here is that as long as that's in existence and until we reach a point where enough of us are doing the work that we need to do to dismantle it, um, to hold these systems accountable, which goes into what Olivia said, the, the work that we do on the ground. It's making, I think at the very core, um, my main goal, and and I think uh, like at least uh, a portion of what we do at No White Saviors is making sure that anti-Black racism, that there is accountability and there's a cost. 
until there's a cost to be anti-Black, until there is a cost for police officers to kill Black people in America, until there is a cost for um, white people, for Chinese people, for Indian people to come to this continent and treat um, African people as second-class citizens in their own country, on their own land, until that there is a cost for that, until there is accountability for that, we won't stop. Um, so we know that for a change to happen, we can't just post about it on Instagram. We can't just advocate. We actually have to build mechanisms of accountability. Um, and so alongside of the education, a big piece of that is legal action, um, is sometimes it's public accountability through journalism and working with journalists. Um, if Wendy was able to join us, sadly, she has audio. There's some audio issues on that end. Um, but Wendy's always really good at reminding us to bring it back to the three main tenets of what we do, which is education, advocacy, and action. Um, so we have all three of those pieces that kind of come, um, you know, into one um, to form No White Saviors, is, is that we are about educating and advocate, advocating, but we're also, the action piece has to be the most important, um, because without that, nothing's going to change. Absolutely. Also, yeah, the conversations that you are having are, are definitely necessary. So thank you for, for doing that. I also wanted to ask, Kelsey, you know, your bio says you're a white savior in recovery. Can you sort of expand on that? What does recovery look like? So recovery, I think it's a really good, I don't know how we started that um, <laughs> phrasing, but when it, when it, it just kind of stuck and it made a lot of sense, because I think obviously people have um, speculation as everyone should, especially black folks. Um, I really don't believe we as white people have any merit or any ground to stand on in terms of being trusted, especially on this continent, but really in the world. Um, so I, it, when I say recovery, it means it's a work in progress, just as anti becoming anti-racist is a lifelong process. I don't just, I don't just get out of being a white savior all of a sudden because I'm part of a team called no white saviors. No, it's literally recognizing and saying in recovery being a constant work in progress because I live in a system that affords me unearned power, privilege, and protection because of whiteness, because of the color of my skin. Um, despite different things that I've been through in life, I have also been protected in very real ways and given opportunities in very real ways because of the color of my skin and the passport that I carry. So with that notion, it's like I, I don't get to point the finger out and stop looking within. And I think that's a very dangerous place for any of us to be, but especially white people. Um, it's dangerous to be at a point where we're criticizing others and not looking at ourselves first and thinking we exist outside of the problem that, that we're an exception. That's literally such a it's such a real symptom of whiteness and white supremacy to think you're an exception um, and to think that we are not actively benefiting from the system that we're trying to also confront at the same time. So I guess what that looks like is ongoing saying what what more do I need to give up? What more do I need to work on and do better with? Because it's never going to be, again, there's never going to be a day where I wake up or any white person should ever wake up and say, my job is done because we're still benefiting from this system. Um, so yeah, white savior and recovery means acknowledging that you live in a system that no matter how much inner work that you do, that system is still affording you under privilege, power, and protection. And we need to constantly be confronting that and confronting the way that it is ingrained in us implicit bias, racism, um, anti-Blackness, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And Olivia, could you explain, you know, what the white savior industrial complex is for people who may not know? Yes. Um, thank you. 
So uh, I'll start by saying in simple terms that the white savior industrial complex refers to a white person who provides help to non-white people in a self-serving manner. And, and this role of, of helping non-white uh, people in modern day version is expressed in, in the poem that was written by um, Rudyard Kapling that says the white man's burden in 1884. But then this term has also been associated mainly with Africa, with African people. And we see this in movies, characters and books and novels, where, especially in movies where you see that it's a white person that has to come and save, you know, the non-white people. It's, it's always the black people that are the bad guys in the movie. And it's, this is not a coincidence that all these things are happening. And did you call the American, the half Nigerian and American writer actually coins this term very well, um, the white savior industrial complex following a release. I don't know if you've had, if your listeners have heard of this or seen this documentary of Kony, um 2012. And it was released in March 2012 in Uganda. So Kony was was a, a rebel leader here in our country, and he caused uh, he caused too much harm to humanity. He's actually wanted by the ICC as we speak right now. So many people lost their lives. So many people are misplaced. But of course, when we get back to reality, there the, there are some parties that never come out clear on this matter, on why this war had to continue for all those years. And so Invisible Children with their documentary, Kony 2012, they come up with uh, this documentary that they think is, is, is the story of the people of the Northern Uganda and people reject it. People rejected it when they saw it on the screens. People said, this is not our story. This is not how we want to be portrayed because these are all lies. So it is from this actually documentary, I know people can go in and search for it and watch it, that Teju Cole comes up and says, and defines the white savior industrial complex in, in a, a series of tweets. And, and one of the tweets he says, the white savior industrial complex supports brutal policies in the morning, Funds, finds charities in the afternoon and receives awards in the evening. And I know, wow. <laughs> I know to people listening in, it might be very, uh, a little bit hard to understand. But in simple terms, he just says that people come in and support brutal policies like the wars. And the evening, they find charities to hide in and and get awards but can we get to the real truth who has the power to even stop these wars who can come up with um different strategies because when we look at the Kony 2012 the, the US army was fully here working together with the UPDF and and it's it's an army from a strong superpower country and our army in is the best in the region in East Africa. And we're saying, whoa, so the two armies marched together and they didn't come up with a solution to this war. 
the war wouldn't even stop when these two merged and they have skills and all the equipment. So Tiju Cole brings it out very well and he, he connects it to charities, brutal policies and awards. And who is getting these awards? We know where they're going and we know who is funding these brutal policies. And he continues to say that the white savior industrial complex is not about justice. It's not about justice, it's having a big emotional experience that validates privilege. And so we see how many millions of dollars we are put to do this documentary about the about uh, Kony 2012. But Kony is still in the forest somewhere in the DR Congo and and where's the justice for these victims? So it's not about justice, it's about the big emotional experience that validates your privilege that, you know, uh, we, we, we put in a lot of money to have, you know, this documentary come out, but at the end of the day, who is benefiting out of this documentary? It's you, it's not the justice for the people of Northern Uganda. It's, it's, it's about you selling in the big cinemas in the world. It's about you getting these awards, getting these prizes in the evening as we see on TVs. But uh, do you actually deserve it? Or is it the people of Northern Uganda that deserve the justice? So that's what I could briefly, uh, I know it wasn't brief, it was long, but I just wanted people to understand when we talk about the white savior industrial complex and what it involves, power, privilege, uh, money, too many things are in here. So this is an industry that runs throughout and it is, it is maintained when you have all these ideologies with you. The privilege, the power, the money, and, and so many things. And and I know I appreciate that answer. And mm. Kelsey, you mentioned, you know, one of the pillars is is action. And so I'm wondering, do you all have suggestions that you give white people on how they can be co-conspirators instead of white saviors? Absolutely. Yeah, there's like, and then I think that here's the thing. We, we also start off by saying that not everyone can or should form an organization like No White Saviors. We happened to start it and it was really like Olivia explained an accident right we started it as just like a joint collective desire to see the conversations we were having brought to a public space because we were recognizing all of these things were talked about in private and then nothing was changing publicly like i would literally hear other like fellow white missionaries and and like white saviors like myself talking about how wrong certain things like international adoption and broken and corrupt they were. Meanwhile, they're adopting 13 kids at the age of 18 and writing a New York Times bestseller and being glorified as a modern day Mother Teresa. Like there are people that will talk about how wrong it all is, but will always see themselves, we can always so easily see ourselves as outside of the problem. So I think first and foremost, it's recognizing that we are part of the problem, right? And we always will be, as long as the system is exists in existence. But as, as we move forward with that notion, it's asking ourselves, what do we, how do I do this in my everyday life? So if I'm in, if I'm a social worker, if I'm a teacher, teacher, if I'm a doctor, if I'm a lawyer, how do I use that skill set of what I do 
to make sure that I'm causing less harm to Black people? How am I making it so that the, the world is less dangerous for Black people to live in? At a base level, we need to be asking ourselves that because as we are benefiting and are protected by the very same system that is harming and killing Black people, we, if we're not actively working to make it safer and to make it costly when Black people are harmed, um, then we are, we're just, you know, it's just theory and it's just, um, it's just for show and it's a, it's a performance. We talk about performative allyship. So I think it's asking yourself, how do I apply this in my field, in my specific area? So if you're a teacher and you're working in a predominantly black neighborhood, what are you doing to make sure that you're less intrusive and less, um, and more culturally competent, more aware of what the students need? Or maybe you shouldn't be teaching at all. If you, if, if, if you've never even been around black people and your first time being around black people is teaching them, teaching kids or becoming a social worker, I promise you that you are not going to know how to relate. You're not going to know what the community needs. You're not going to know. And that's just something at a base level that goes from Philly, where I'm from in the U.S., to here in Uganda. When we are the ones that have caused the very problems that black communities are faced with, we do not have the answers or the solutions. We will cause more problems. We will cause more harm if we are not laying our pride down, if we are not humbling ourselves and recognizing we need to take a back seat. We need to work in collaboration and alongside of. We do not need to be the ones rushing in. And that is literally what we see with the white savior complex. Rushing in, claiming we have the solutions to cause the very problems we created in the first place. Um, in communities that are not our own, that are different culturally, that are different languages, different. There's so many things that are barriers there. So I think, I know I that's I just threw a lot out there, but if I had to summarize, I think it is asking ourselves in our individual path within the field that we work in, in our day-to-day -day lives, what are we doing to make the world safer for Black people um, and for obviously all non-white people, all um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, because anyone non-white is being negatively affected by the system of white supremacy. So, so yeah, um, I don't know if, uh, Olivia, if you have any tangibles that you want to give how to be a, um, how to be a, an accomplice or a co-conspirator. Conspirator. I know we talked about John Brown. Um, Malcolm X gave a really good, he spoke about John Brown, who is the only white a accomplice or co-conspirator that Malcolm X actually recognized. He said, this is a white man during abolition that was willing to die for, um, you know, abolition. Um, he wasn't just, you know, posting a selfie or Black Lives Matter status or whatever. He was, he was out there in the streets saying, I created this, my, me and my fellow white people created this problem. I'm going to put my life on the line. Um, and he's not a martyr. This is literally that to me, that's, that's what needs to be expected of us. I'm not saying go out and, and like, you know, uh, be reckless, but to be strategic and to take risks where risks are necessary to dismantle a system for hundreds, for hundreds of years that has been harming, um, and causing extreme violence to black people in particular. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like what you said about, you know, we always forget that like people have and the communities have the solutions. We don't need to like be flying in and bringing solutions with us when we don't live in those communities. Um, you know, this is very important work. And I imagine that there are moments when it's very angering, very saddening. And I wonder sort of what, what keeps you all going? That's a good question. Oh, well, everyone has, um, has what keeps them going. Of course, this work can be 
can be very, as you said, angering and and what do we do? So one, um, what keeps us going is that one, we when we started No White Saviors, we had this in mind that um, not everyone is going to be, is going to agree with what we say. Not everyone, everyone is going to have their own opinion towards this work. But what is our main goal? Is something that we keep on reminding ourselves. If we are going to stand for justice, there's so much that is involved. There's so much that that is to be risked. There's so much that is going to be, uh, that we're going to experience. The quest for justice is not for the weak. That is one thing. But at the end of the day, we are human beings. We break down. And we feel sometimes we're like, oh, wow, this, this, this is it. Like from getting emails that are very uh, terrible to uh, reading comments from people and we're like, oh, in this era, people are still commenting about these issues in this way. And also um, with, with the censoring of our work on Instagram with you know, putting down some of our posts, this can also overweigh. But for me personally, as a person, I I tell I have a family. <laughs> I have a family, I have a son. So I, I try to break this time when I feel that, you know what? Things are not okay. I try to divert the energy and try to talk through and maybe engage myself in something else for, you know, for some time, but keeping in mind that what the work has to go on, we have to continue. And also um, the people that I have around me are very supportive of this work. They know what we do. They know um, what is involved in this work, that there are days that are going to be very rough but how do they keep me back on track? How do they help me, you know, stand? And also, as a team, we've always tried to remind ourselves that um, not everyone is is happy for us talking about their privilege. Not everyone wants to listen to these conversations. But what do we do if one person gets down and they are broken? We stand in, encourage them, and say, you know what? We have to move on. We have to, uh, we have to go on with the work. If you need a break, please take a break of a day or two or three. As long as you feel much better and you feel healthy, you can come back in the space and we continue doing the work because this is a journey that we are non-stopping. It's it's a journey that has no end. We don't know where, when it will stop. We don't know where we're going to push it to. And we don't know who's going to take over. So we continue moving. And when we are thirsty on the way, we take some water, take a rest, and then come back and continue with this journey. So this is, to me, in simple terms, I said that the work we do is, is a personal, to me, it's a personal journey that I've taken towards justice. And... It is, it is going to continue, whether I'm here 
whether I leave, someone else will take over because I I don't see justice being served, especially to black people in one or two or ten years from now. It's just a this is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. So we just need to lay the foundation and create the legacy for other people to carry on. Yeah. Thank you for taking on this journey for us. <laughs> Liv, it sounded like um, when you were describing it that we were like getting into the ring of like a boxing match or an MMA fight. I think that's Because <laughs> you're like, you know, we take some water, we, you know, maybe get our sweat towels and then we get back out there. Exactly. Um, but it's, you know, it is. And we yeah. honestly need each other because I was just reflecting on that the other day, the way if you were just, if folks were in our office and they were a fly on the wall, like the kind of banter and laughter that you see, like we had a friend from Nigeria who's a good, he's a great photographer. Um, he's very much a truth teller in the issues in the sector. Um, and he basically was like, I like someone said to me one time that they thought the No White Saviors team was just a bunch of like angry black women on laptops, like breaking keyboards and like throwing it. I was like, okay, this is probably a white person that said it, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, like you obviously think we're just angry all the time. We're angry. We're, we're, we have, there's a righteous anger in confronting systems mm -hmm. of oppression, right? There is a righteous anger that is necessary to confront injustice. If we don't have that, we will literally just be like throwing up the peace sign and be like, it's all good. Like it's we don't need that energy to actually fight this kind of violence. That doesn't mean we necessarily need violence in all forms, but sometimes even violence is does serve a purpose. And so um, I think that there is a need for us to also hold on to the wins to hold on to the community that we've built for first and foremost, us as a team, like we are, you know, like it's, a, it's like a family. We have all so many personalities, so many different um, uh, skill sets and strengths and different weaknesses. And it's like where one person is not strong, another person is strong. And we really, um, you know, fill in those gaps um, as a team. And then we have a community of people that follow No White Saviors and, and people that donate time or money um, and it's little by little, like we don't get any big donors. We don't have any big mm -hmm. funders. Um, people might think otherwise because of the size of our platform. But I think given the pretty radical nature of the content and messaging of what we do and how we do it, um, it's really just being, it's people who just care about this platform and this um, movement existing. And so holding on to the wins and holding on to the uh, fact that it's not just for nothing. We're not just, you know, blowing hot air or speaking into space and nothing's happening. We're tangibly holding people accountable, um, not just through the platform, but like we said, through legal action, through journalistic um, means, through different, you know, it's, a lot of this takes creativity. It's looking at a problem and saying, sometimes we're hiring a private, private investigator. Sometimes we are the private investigators. I think we hold on, there's a lot to hold on to in terms of progress that's being made and, and justice that's being served. Before I ask you my two closeout questions, I want to ask you about your poker faces. And I, you know, I was speaking to my husband about this and was wondering if each of you maybe has a phrase that makes you roll your eyes before you catch yourself. Like, for example, if I hear I don't see color, then I know that my face changes before I've even realized that my face has changed. And so I wonder if if you all have phrases that you hear or comments that you get that you're like, oh, Jesus. I love this question. Liv, do you want to answer that? Do you have a... 
Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, oh. <laughs> Where do I even start? Uh, I think on the team, people know me even. <laughs> even if I say anything, I, I would have, you know, given this expression with my face straight away when I hear some <laughs> someone. So most of the things that I hear is that I am, what is very, for me, what makes me roll my eyes is like, I, I, I went to Africa to find myself. I'm like, huh? The whole oh, continent? Yeah. People will be like, <laughs> I went to Africa to find myself. And I'm like, ooh, okay. If I say anything, I'm just looking at, you know, I make this expression. And also saying that we need to, we are changing lives. Woo! Whenever I hear a white person saying changing lives, even if we're doing a lecture or a consultation on Zoom, my eyes just roll in and they're like, hmm? And Kelsey, Kelsey normally looks at me and she's like, ah, leave, I know that facial expression. So. If I hear people saying, we are changing lives in Africa. Ah. So I'm finding myself. I mean, there's so many times, there's so many things that we hear. And sometimes we look at each other, even before saying anything, we're like, wow, this is it. So for me, <laughs> I know Kelsey has had several. I yeah, no, I everything Olivia said, I know that those are true because I've seen Olivia roll her eyes. Um, so I can attest to that. No, I um I think my one of mine is any type of kind of argumentation about reverse racism. Um, because that is it's like at this point, we all have the resources and the ability to know what racism is and what it's not, right? So when you understand it as an institutional power to oppress a group of people based on their phenotypic presentation, right? Then you know white people will never be recipients or on the receiving end of racism. So with that, I think like any time that that's where the argumentation starts to go and it's like, well, like when I'm in market and I'm charged more money because I'm white, then I'm like, that's not, that's literally people being good business people. They're like, this is a white person. They might have more money. I'm going to charge them more. Like that's not... <laughs> so yes, um, I think that's my biggest uh, eye roller and or like the where my poker face is definitely a no go. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I like those answers. So thank you for rolling with me on that on that question. Um, what would you say is your biggest fear for humanity? I mean, no one has asked me this question before, and I'm happy to share uh, what my fear for humanity is or why as a black woman my fear my fear for humanity is that when will it end for us to try and always explain that we are fully human in this world like when will this stop i look at it because it's something that we our forefathers have fought for, have advocated for, but look at us years later, a hundred years or more, we are still trying to justify why people should call us human beings. And my greatest fear is that our children are going to hold on to the same burden of trying to explain to the world that they are human beings. 
And what has it taken for us to actually advocate for us being human? It continues to take our lives every day. We are killed, we are murdered. And it's a struggle to see that these systems that oppress us every day are going to give us the freedom that we need. So for me, it scares me. It creates the fear that we still have to advocate for us to be called human beings. And to our children, they still hold the same burden of looking the way they look, their skin color, explaining their lives every day and living in fear and danger. That's what I can say, that that is what scares me because people have this mentality of saying that we are all human, but it's not true when we get back to reality. The way we are being treated, the way we are being exploited, the way we are being um, oppressed is, is, that's my fear every day. I think, um, yes, I don't know how to follow that one up, but I do know that Liv, that's, I think that's what we're fighting. That's the very crux and basis of our fight, right? Of what we're doing is to make sure that we get closer. In our lifetime, we won't see a complete ridding, right? We know how, how much this system has sunk its teeth in and how much people seek to benefit and do benefit from it. Um, I think that's the danger of viewing white supremacy as an issue of ignorance instead of an issue of power. So I think that my biggest fear um, for humanity is that the truth won't win, that people in positions of power who are benefiting the most from systems of oppression have absolute power and rule over this world. <laughs> and that as much as enough of us rise up and shed light on what is going on and how violent and destructive it has been, that that they will still have the, the, the most power and ability to win over that. And I think, I don't believe that, right? That's a fear, <laughs> but I don't operate in fear. I don't think we as a team could exist the way that we do and do what we do if we operated out of a place of fear. Of course, we have moments that we, we get into the fear, the fear element, but just as so many revolutionaries um, that we've learned from and are inspired by, um, people like Steve Biko, I look at what he did and how he moved in South Africa and that man was fearless. Um, he knew what the cost was of how, how, um, just direct and unapologetic he was in challenging apartheid and challenging white racism. Um, I think that we, um, we see and we learn from people like Malcolm X and Asada Shakur and Angela Davis and so many others that, Fred Hampton, um, they just, you know, put a movie out this year about Fred Hampton, um, Judas and the Black Messiah. And the reason Fred Hampton was so terrifying for the U.S. government, the FBI and um, Chicago police was that he was a young 21-year-old Black man from Chicago who was able to mobilize not only Black folks in Chicago, but poor white racists. He was able to get poor white racists. He was able to get um, different groups from the Asian community. He was able to mobilize people in a way 
that was terrifying for people in positions of power in the U.S. And so when anyone like a, a Fred Hampton comes into the world and is able to be that powerful voice and to say, look, we have differences, but actually we have way more in common than we have difference. And you're mm -hmm. not actually benefiting from the system in the way that it convinces you that you are. You're poor too. You're poor. They don't care about you either. Like white supremacy will really have poor white folks thinking that it cares about us more than it cares about making money. And so I think that exposure, education, and, and truth-telling, I do see it winning. I do see it. We're in a time and place where it is winning and where we have more resources and capability to reach more people with the internet, with social media, um, than we've ever had in the past. And so if we keep using that, if we keep building community, if we keep building bridges with other folks doing justice-oriented work and liberatory work, instead of seeing each other as competition, then I do. I do think that we um, we don't have to op operate in that space of fear. I think we can operate in that space of seeing the tangible results and the progress being made. Yeah. And I was going to I was going to ask you what your greatest hope for humanity is. But I think I think you just answered it there. Um, and, and it sounds like you all work from from the space and the place of hope instead of fear. Absolutely. Yeah. And just knowing, like, what's the alternative? Right. The al alternative is living in fear and not stepping out and then what we die knowing that we saw things that could change and that we could actually tangibly do something about but we just operated in a place of fear and it honestly fear is really beneficial to white supremacy it wants mm -hmm. us to be scared it wants us to be paralyzed it wants us to not believe that we can do anything but i believe the more truth telling that happens the more community building that happens um, pan-africanism is essential to that um, I know Olivia would be able to speak more to that element, but um, we have a lot of really important uh, mentors and folks who who come alongside of our work who are strong, committed Pan-Africanists who believe in a global unity um, of African people. So um, all of that is important to seeing this shift and seeing um, true liberation for, for the continent. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. And... I'm so sorry that we couldn't have Wendy on as well, but it was lovely to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. It was an honor to be asked. Thank you too. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.